Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House podcast with me, Louise Rumble. And today I am joined by Dr. Massimo Fontana. And you are back listening to another sex episode. These are so juicy. I swear we talk about stuff that is just not out there on the internet. So if you are back on this journey with us, thank you. And I'm proud of you for diving into these discussions where some people, it would have them literally like peeing their pants with anxiety. And um, yeah, talking of (laughs) peeing and fluid, a bit of a weird connection. But today we are talking about crying. We are going to be talking about crying after sex. Now, why are we talking about crying after sex? You might be asking. And the reason is, is because I cried after sex for the first time ever, like four months ago. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman. I'd never done it before, but just something happened whilst we were having sex and it brought back all these like feelings. It was like the exact position that I was in and the way that my boyfriend put his hands like around my waist and like pulled me towards him. It was very triggering for me. It was very, I guess I had obviously been in a situation that didn't feel good where that exact thing happened. And I think that him doing that was almost like reliving that moment and probably released some memories that were stored cellularly in me. Anyway, yeah, I I cried. I just felt so sad. And all of a sudden these tears were coming out and he was like, oh my goodness. And, you know, it wasn't a big deal. It doesn't need to be a big deal if you cry after sex. And I guess I was crying during sex, actually, probably. It was like a midway thing where we stopped having sex. And he was so loving and he was so caring and there was no shame. But it just made me realize like, oh my God, this is what people talk about. Like sex can make you cry. Sex can make you cry during. Sex can make you cry after. And that's what we're going to get into today. So I can't wait to have this discussion. And we are going to get into the eight reasons that you might be crying before, during, or after having sex and whether that's normal, when it should be something that you should be maybe looking deeper into. So I guess Massimo, where should we start? Should we just start with like, what is going on when you cry after sex? Is it always negative? Can it sometimes be okay? Is it normal? What do you think? There's there's so many different reasons why people can cry during, after, before sex. But if we're focusing on after experience, emotional disconnection is one where a person feels completely emotionally disconnected from their partner. And this is one of those moments where you'll have a lot of feelings of sadness and emptiness after sex. I know from my experience that I would often feel really sad after sex, maybe before, because I think so many of us have sex hoping 
that it will lead to emotional intimacy or we have sex when really we want to just cuddle with them. And I think sometimes, you know, we do do things where actually when it's happened, we wish that we hadn't and maybe we're doing it because we want love or affection from them or to bring ourselves closer. And then actually once we've done it, we realize like, oh my goodness, the reason that I did this isn't going to materialize. Like, do you think that's one reason that we can experience emotional disconnection? Like ultimately from not only ourselves, but from the other Absolutely. Yes. And and I think also because we go into these experiences hoping that the other person is going to read us well in terms of what we're needing on an emotional level and not having that met by that person almost can push us to get to a place where we numb out or we dissociate from our emotions or something triggers us to completely cut off because maybe the experience is so amazing that it's it's an experience so new for you to encounter something amazing that you go, this is just something I'm I'm unequipped to deal with. So we, we numb out and we switch off. But really, I think the root is our inability to express our emotional state in that particular moment. That's so fascinating because a lot of work I'm doing at the moment is on like somatic therapy and about how if you start to feel your emotions as they come up, rather than suppressing them, distracting them, avoiding them, Ultimately, when that big release comes, it, it actually comes less frequently and less intensely because, you know, it's like been you've been releasing it as as it builds. So I think that's really interesting as well as how, yeah, like you said, often sex is like the pinnacle, right? You've been you've been dating someone, you've been courting them, chirpsing them, like hoping for things. All of a sudden it's happened. And then it's like, oh my God, now I'm into the reality of that, like actually you didn't fall in love with me and like, you're not cuddling me after sex and you've just got up and gone to the bathroom and picked your phone up. And I'm here and I built this whole story and this fantasy in my head about how having sex is, we're going to fall in love or you're going to like me more for it. And then that there's that like cold, harsh truth afterwards where it's like, oh, he, she just rolled over, gone to sleep, picked up their phone, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's such a important thing to understand is that like often we can cry because of the narrative that is built around the situation. Like what narrative do you build around sexual and emotional encounters? And, and is there some sort of romanticization expectation that is silent and sort of built into the sexual encounter that when it doesn't happen, you're like, oh, you know, left crying in a corner. This leads beautifully into the next one, which is regret. And regret is really one of the things that can trigger that response. And fundamentally, it's connected with making a poor choice or it's a conflict where you feel your values have been violated. Regret is so interesting because I think that the regret is kind of like when the shame kicks in, like the, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Like, oh, why did I do that, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's very much like the next day, you know, when they leave or, you know, when they leave and then you're thinking, oh my God, they're never going to speak to me again. Or, oh my God, like that wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. I definitely think that that regret is something that I have experienced firsthand and it really ties into like the next day anxiety. And I think this also ties into the concept of like feeling dirty. And we say dirty for anyone that's not watching the video, like in inverted commas, because there should be no shame. Pleasure is not dirty and no one can ever make you feel dirty. This really is just these feelings that have come through years and years of societal brainwashing. Regret, interestingly, is something that a lot of men 
don't admit to, especially after having one night stands and short experiences, because the minute they realize that they've engaged with someone who is on a different emotional playing field to them, and they now realize the impact of what their penetration has actually done usually leads them to regret. And that's one of the precursors that actually can hold up a bit of a mirror to a man and say, you need to start reflecting in terms of your own integrity as to why you're doing this. What is your responsibility to hold that space if you want to engage with this person? That's fascinating. And I love it that you bring the male aspect to this podcast, because I know that we have so many female listeners, but I think it is always so important to understand, like on the flip side for some of the male listeners that we do have, like how this can also be applicable. And I think understanding this concept of regret ties back to shame, which we've spoken about before. And I think it's really important to understand that if you are feeling regret, there is likelihood that also you will be feeling shame. And the shame is what goes a lot deeper than the regret because the regret is sort of external, like regret about a situation or an act, whereas the shame becomes about you and your identity and who you are as a person in this world. So I think that if you are going through cycles of things that are regretful and you are feeling this regret often, I think it's a sign that you can go deeper on this on this healing journey that there there is potentially more to unpack in terms of your sex story and the meaning of it and the way that you've tied your sexual acts and your sexual story to your identity. And, you know, healing that is huge. So you can get to a point where you can have sexual intercourse, sexual acts, any kind of intimacy without feeling anything other than positive experiences. And I, for one, I'm going to say that's taken me, I wouldn't even say I'm there yet. Like my relationship with sex has been so complex that I honestly don't think that most people would understand. And it's just important for me to share that because I know for me, it seems so easy for everyone else. So easy for them to have casual sex, so easy for them to be intimate with people. Whereas me, I'd be racked with like so many emotions and triggers from the past and traumas and sexual assault and just like racked with like this sexual story. So I just want people that do feel the same as me listening to understand like, it's okay if you feel the same way. It's okay if you cry after sex, whether you do it on your own in the bathroom, whether you do it when they've left, whether you do it, you know, when when you're right there with them, like you feel broken. I feel sad saying this, like you feel broken and you just feel like, why can't this be easy for me? Like it's so easy for everyone else. And I'm there with you and it's still not easy for me, but building a relationship based around like truth and integrity, safety and consent will be the most healing experience you've ever gone on. So I want you to know that there is, there is hope out there, but it is, it does involve doing the work. And I guess this ties into the slightly more triggering point of, I know that one of the points on our list that the reasons you can cry after sex is that you did things that you didn't want to do. So yeah, trigger warning for anyone around probably sexual assault. But yeah, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? That we Sadly, today, so many of us do things that actually we didn't want to do, whether that was in the moment we were pressurized into it, whether it was in the moment we didn't know how to use our voice, whether it was substances that took us to a messy, inebriated situation that wouldn't have happened if it was sober. I think everybody who knows me probably knows that one of my favorite sayings is, if it's a maybe, it's a no. 
And I think it's a principle that we can apply to everything. And it's one of the most major safeguards that when we do implement it, we know exactly where we stand, whether we want to do something or that we don't want to do something. We don't necessarily need to know the ins and outs of why we don't want to do something. But the minute we hit that point of maybe, acknowledge it, walk away, be reflective, try and understand it differently. Because if you place yourself in a position where you are giving consent and it's and the other person you're engaging with is not conscientious enough to actually read the signals and the energy involved in the situation and they are very much in a primal state they are never going to be able to acknowledge your emotional state or where you are and this is where unfortunately it is a huge responsibility on us when we do deal with unconscious human beings in the sexual space, because we do go to a primal space. We want to connect. We want to ravish each other. So that's natural. But it's not natural if we feel that consent is not adhered to. And it's super important to point out as well that if at any point during any sexual interaction, you feel that it has shifted back into a maybe, a maybe is a no, and maybe is the voice for you to say, no, this is done. This needs to finish and we need to walk away. That brings me perfectly onto what I just wrote down is like the concept of using your voice. It just is the perfect, most seamless transition because for me, I think it, it, a lot of my sexual trauma came from the fact that I wasn't able to use my voice in the bedroom. And often that was because how could I use my voice in the bedroom to say stop when I'd so willingly and gallantly and drunkenly entered into the bedroom after a night out of making out all night in the club and making out all the way home. And for me, there's like a very fine line between honestly kissing someone, like making out like teenagers for me is the easiest thing in the world to do. There's no trauma around it. I love it. It's so fun. It's when you get back into someone's house, when you really start to enter into that intimate space of like starting to take your clothes off and yeah, being, I actually even would say it goes as far as like, even the foreplay for me is is pretty non-traumatic. Like I always feel like I would happily like give out a blowjob like candy and, you know, would love for them to touch me and pleasure me. And I have many nights where there were very non-traumatizing experiences of just like great foreplay experiences. But for me, it's the actual sex that's always been like the traumatizing piece for me. And I always felt like by the time I got to that point, I couldn't use my voice. Like, how could I use my voice to say, please stop, please remove your penis. Like, please, I don't consent. You know, obviously I wouldn't say I don't consent to this, but I'd say like, now I'd say like, this doesn't feel good for me, please. I need to stop. When I was younger, I felt like, how could I say that when I'm the one that's been all over you and I'm the one that's been, you know, taking you back here and kissing you and like pulling, ripping your clothes off. And it's been a very sobering journey in therapy to understand, like Massimo said, that you can say stop at any fucking point. The second that it doesn't feel good, the second that you're even thinking, oh, that doesn't feel good. Oh, I don't like it. Oh, I don't want to do this. You can fucking say no. And I'm swearing because I'm like, I wish someone had spoken to me like this age 14, age 16, age 18, age 22, 24, 26, at all these times along the way when I never use my fucking voice, I wish someone had told me that you can stand up at any point and you can tell someone to get the fuck out of your house as well. Because there's one thing is telling them to please get off me. But I've had situations where men have removed the condom 
halfway through having sex with me and continued fucking me. No, you do not get the, you do not get to fucking do that. That is disgusting, disrespectful. I did not consent to having sex with you without a condom. But when I was younger, you don't say anything. You just say, oh my God, why did you do that? Like what? Like you kind of laugh it off. No, that is unacceptable. So if at any point anyone does anything that isn't, doesn't feel right for you, you have full permission to use your voice to say, get out of my house, get off my body, whatever that is. And it doesn't have to be aggressive like that, but you have full permission for it to be as aggressive as you want it to, because you, it is your body. You have every right to tell someone whatever is, is going on. Um, that was a bit of an aggressive tangent. I'd love to hear, <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that kind of like stopping at, at any point when it doesn't feel good and how to navigate that. Like why as women, we feel that we have to be so soft and gentle and sexual and why as men, you feel a pressure that you have to keep going. You know, my boyfriend will say to me like that there's pressure on men to just fuck and keep fucking. There's there's pressure for them on the flip side. They can never say, hey, this doesn't actually feel good for me or like, hey, actually, I don't want to finish. You know, have you ever had a man that said that to you? No, because the second that a man says that, the woman then starts crying because it's like, oh my God, why? What did I do wrong? You don't fancy me. You're a man. You're supposed to want to fuck everything that moves. There's a lot of swear words going on today. I'm really glad we're going here. I think this is like some of the most important stuff we've ever spoken about. This this aligns itself once again with with this idea of maybe as a no, and I think it's a principle that really works with both men and women because, like you're saying, your boyfriend and and his experience is is super important because there's an obligation I think on a lot of men to be in a space of performance all the time, and we have this tool that we use to penetrate, and if it's not working, there's usually a whole other narrative that gets attached to that. Now you can have the kind of conversation where. You can preempt that there's a natural desire from both parties wanting to engage in that that type of intercourse, that penetration, the end of the line where both have their orgasms, whichever way you want to look at it. But the beauty of that kind of conversation is, is that you can revisit the flow of the sexual encounter as often as you need to. And you can take it as slowly as possible. It's almost like saying, my desire right now is, is that I just want to be kissing and cuddling, like you were mentioning before, right? You can make out for hours and hours and hours. And if it gets to the point where you go, actually, you know what, I'm going to revisit this and we need to have this conversation again and go, okay, I don't mind if there's some gentle touching right now. And let's say, for instance, you stay at that space. There has to be the mutual respect that whoever has the lesser desire in the situation is the one that is respected. Equally, there is the respect to the other person that they maybe want to be penetrated or want to penetrate. But if the other, per- but if the other person is not a, a voluntary participant 100% in, then it's a maybe, then it's a no. And that's where I think it's a beautiful responsibility for the other person as well, because you could be all in the experience and you see the hesitance in the other person and they're going, oh, I don't know if this feels okay, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's a perfect opportunity to actually instill respect into that relationship and turn around and say, actually, you know what? I'm not feeling that you're hundred percent in this. Is this a maybe for you? And let's say they respond and they go, yes, it's a maybe for me. Well, then a maybe is a no. Let's cool it off a little bit. Let's have a discussion. Let's have a coffee. Let's have a break. Let's kiss and cuddle. And we come to the end of whatever we're experiencing right now. Because this is an experience that affects both parties, not just one. The person who does the penetration 
and then later has the experience that it wasn't consensual, even in their mind, it felt like it was consensual, is going to feel like they did something that they shouldn't have done. And that in itself is going to create a shameful experience for them. And vice versa, the person who's gone through that experience and hasn't had the voice to say no is going to feel that something has been done to them that shouldn't have happened. I can imagine that a lot of people are listening to this podcast thinking, yes, Massimo, this is all well and good, but where on planet Earth do men exist that will do these kinds of things? And I just want to say that if you're listening to that, thinking that, then sis, I have been with you for so many years because Massimo said the words mutual respect and I wrote them down because I think that the reason I was so traumatized by all of my younger sexual encounters was not only was there no mutual respect, there was just no respect generally. Like, how can someone respect you if they don't even know you? And yes, you can have conscious casual sex and they can respect you. That's possible. But I think that the vast majority of casual sex today, they, there is not that mutual respect because you're not having these conversations that we're going to be talking about later on the podcast about what you really should be talking about before having sex with someone to make sure that you feel comfortable and, and you feel happy. So yeah, you're, you're so right. It's about, it is about mutual respect, but hell, that's so very clear to me why I've had so much sexual trauma because so many of my encounters did not involve mutual respect, did not involve a partner that was even vaguely looking at, oh, is this a maybe for her or not? And not only was that because we were young and we were disconnected, but also because when you're drunk, when you're high, you're in, you're inhibited. You, you're everything's blurry, and you know you're not taking in the the slightest tensing up of someone's body when you say to when they say to you like, oh, I want you to suck my dick, and how does she react to that? How does he react to that? You know. Is there the tiniest shift in body language, body movements? Did they move? You know, to do that, you have to be tapped in. You have to be conscious. You have to be aware. And I do think that when substances are involved, it 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 makes more sense why like those moments get missed. And that for me is why sobriety has been one of the most beautiful experiences of my life in the sexual spaces. Like there's, I don't have drunk sex anymore. Like I don't have high sex. There's no, there's a reduced likelihood of those moments being missed um, and less inebriation, which equals more ability to say, oh, is this a maybe? And then like Dr. Massimo said, this this is a maybe and this doesn't feel good for me. You know, I'd like to stop this. So I think that's so important. And I'd love to talk a little bit about how you can often like cry after an orgasm because of like the physical release of emotions. You know, you can have this amazing, we've spoken a lot about how a lot of these things are negative, but let's also take this into the positive space, right? Like you can often have an amazing orgasm. Like you can be seeing stars and love the person that you're with and whatnot, and you can still cry, but it can be a different type of crying. Like it can be coming from a different place. So I'd love it if you could just tell us a little bit more about this like emotional purge. And I guess like what's happening then after we orgasm? If you're thinking about crying after sex, once you've had an orgasm, you have completely surrendered to your body, allowing your body to do whatever it needs to do. So it's highlighting that you have surrendered to this person to allow them to take you to a place of absolute pleasure. And you've embraced it completely. And if we think about what crying actually does, 
if you think about the lacrimal ducts. As we cry, we release endorphins. And that's why the statement, have a good cry, is connected with crying. And if we can connect with crying from that perspective and look at it as, wow, I'm actually soothing myself by allowing myself to cry after a beautiful experience with this person. Normally looking at this other person for the aftercare and the holding, which yes, you'll be crying out of joy, which will naturally, thankfully, hopefully give them the indicator that they need to hold you and and be with you and be present and, and really understand that aftercare is super important there. But it is a complete soothing process. Maybe it's actually a really interesting challenge for people to see how far you can take your orgasmic skills, in inverted commas, to feel what that absolute release feels like. Because I know from, from my tantric training that when you do allow yourself to tap into that energetic space, your body convulses. It does things that you've never imagined it to do. You can have an energetic orgasm. It doesn't have to be about physical touch and penetration. So the capacity of our bodies, I think we're only scraping the surface. So for me, that's an, it's a beautiful sign if you allow your body to actually do that. And it's so hard to let yourself do it because we've been so conditioned that it's like so fucking weird to cry after sex. And I know that when I was crying, I was like laughing and crying at the same time. I was like, I, I was like, I don't know why I'm crying. Like, I'm so sorry. And my boyfriend was like, you don't need to be sorry. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, ah. um, and I was like laughing and crying at the same time. And I think that if it was ever to happen again, like you said, I would just surrender into that experience and just like let it come out. Because like I said, the more and more work I do in the somatic space is I'm learning that emotional releases can come in so many ways. You know, it can be through crying. It can be through shouting. It can be through shaking. It can be through humming, burping. You know, there's like so many different ways that the body can release energy, like through its its physical functions. And crying is just one of them, as is laughing. So I think surrendering to that is just as important. Like surrendering to crying when the orgasm after the orgasm is just as important as surrendering to the anger that wants to come up when when something happens in in the anger space. So I love that idea of of just breathing into it and just like letting it flow through. Otherwise we move into a space of suppression. And I mean, all we're ever trying to do on this podcast is take people out of a space of sexual suppression. So if you are listening and you do cry, please just let it happen. Um, and again, like Massimo said, you hopefully are with a healthy partner that will hold you. If you are with a partner that says, what the fuck are you doing? This is the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. I'm really, really sorry. You deserve to be with someone who is much more conscious kind, emotionally connective, able to hold space for the human experience than that person. So if you've ever been shamed or judged, you deserve to be able to move out of that space with love and compassion. Now, I'm also really, really interested in this concept of like removing blockages and like trauma in the body. And a lot of what I'm learning at the moment is that people really misunderstand what trauma is, right? And trauma is ultimately something that happened too fast, too much, too soon, or not with enough support around you. And the more and more I learn is that the energy of these experiences generates a reaction in our nervous system, almost like a stress response. And that the stress response in the nervous system is supposed to go full cycle. 
So you're supposed to come back to ground zero. Your body has discharged the energy, discharged the stress, moves back into like calm and regulated. But for so many of us, because we're not taught to process or fully complete that stress cycle, or if something is so traumatic, we suppress. Now, what I've learned is that that suppression can go into the energy, can go into the nervous system, into the muscles, into the sexual organs, into any of the organs. You know, really, it's very dependent on on who you are and and where that that submission and suppression goes. But what you've taught me a lot is that we can have blockages in our sexuality. And I think that this is very interesting for maybe for people that have never orgasmed or for people that do find it hard to orgasm or, you know, I don't have a problem with either of those two things, but I do have a chronic pain disorder, which means I have a lot of pelvic pain. Um, So, you know, you could think that energetically, physically, there's some definite blockages and trauma sort of stored in my pelvis and in my lower back. So yeah, I'd love your thoughts on like somatic release. And if you think this is true, that there can be like blockages in sexual organs. The simple answer is absolutely. I think, I think the foundations of sexology were built on recognizing that there were all these blockages, but I think the problem is is that it was always treated from a medical perspective and please don't take me wrong. I think clinical sexology has been a savior and the medical system has been a savior to a lot of a lot of sexual problems but i love the fact that we're speaking about somatic work because it's the one section that i think is deeply overlooked and if you're looking at genitals as an example it's i'll show you how quickly a blockage can form if someone has an sti let's say you get chlamydia and you have the burn you have a burning sensation at the, the end of your penis you go get an STI check, you are going to have a swab inserted. So for a man, it's probably going to be the first time you insert something into your penis. And all of these small events are eventually going to lead to that moment where you start feeling some kind of shame as to what's happened. You have to go on antibiotics, you have to be in a waiting room with other people. All these factors are going to start slowly but surely integrating itself into your body and into your muscles, as you were saying. The next time you actually start having sex, all of a sudden you may start feeling, hmm, there's an interesting pain that's happening in one of my testicles. Now, is this pain that's actually coming from the STI itself? Or is this an imagined pain that you're going, this is a resistance to actually stepping back into the sexual space again? And what you'll find is that most people don't actually allow themselves to be curious about pain. What they want to do is that they want to medicalize it and find some kind of treatment to take it away rather than actually looking at what is my body part? What is this organ within my body communicating to me so that I can try and understand it from a different perspective? So the pelvis is is also a beautiful space to explore because it's between your sacral chakra and your, your base chakra. Now, If you're just looking at the concept of struggling with penetration in life and feeling that you have a capacity to face the world and confront things, if you don't have that, what interestingly happens with a lot of people is is that they have pelvic pain. So all of these little, I guess, aspects that start presenting themselves in the body are very interesting to look at. One of my, my favorite authors, his name is Dr. Sarno, had a back clinic in the States and he was one of the top surgeons doing back surgery all the time. It got to a point where he realized that emotions were actually the main problem and how they were isolating in the back that he moved, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but 80% of his clients over to doing more emotional somatic based work rather than actually putting them through surgery. 
So that's got to say something. And this area within the sexual space is really open wide for a lot of exploration. And that's where I think it's the invitation for a lot of people to actually step into their own personal space and explore what is going on with their blockages. Okay, okay, okay. I have so much to say here. This is obviously my area of expertise since I live with pelvic pain. First of all, I have read that that Dr. Sarno book. It's called Healing Back Pain. And it was because my father has chronic back pain as well. And I've just read every resource under the sun. And that book is incredible. It's exactly like Dr. Massimo said. He basically says like 80% or whatever that, that statistic is of, of actual pain. Even if there are structural abnormalities in the spine, which everyone says like my father, oh, no, no, I've got back pain because I've got a structural abnormality in the spine. He says that so many of these cases are actually driven by the emotional, the, the way that emotions get lodged in the body and interfere with the pain networks and the pain cycles. So could not agree with you more. And actually, interesting story. The reason that I ended up in the therapy room was because of this chronic pain disorder, because I had tried everything under the sun. And then I started reading books saying, actually, this is emotional suppression and it's just being suppressed into the body. And I think for the women listening, you obviously gave the testicle example, which can't relate to. Would be so weird to have balls. I honestly just like can't even imagine (laughs) what that would be like. Um, But for women, I think there's so many things that can lead to pelvic trauma that we're not even aware of. And that can be even starting ballet from such a young age where you're constantly told to suck in, suck in, suck in. Plus the society's like brainwashing that you have to be skinnier. So you walk around like sucking it all in. Then also the pelvic exams, like I'm not the only one that will have had some kind of, what's it called when they, a smear test, like you have a smear test or maybe you have thrush when you're younger, or maybe you have an STI check and whatever it is that you're doing, it's often the same situation where it's like into the doctors, they stick that freezing cold metal speculum inside you. Maybe they wax some lube on it. It's freezing cold. You're there, you're under the harsh lights in the doctor's surgery. You've taken your pants off, like it's just not a nice situation. They put it inside you. They like crank it open. They do the swabs, they do it. And then they're like, okay, you can go. And probably during that, you are holding your breath. You probably are not feeling comfortable. Like it's an uncomfortable situation. And, you know, I don't have any moments where I look back and think like, oh, that was deeply traumatic. But for so many people, they will. And it also doesn't have to be a conscious memory. Your body keeps the score. Your body will hold on to that. That was an act of penetration and it was violent and it was unloving and it was cold and it was scary. Maybe you were scared about the results of your smear test. Maybe you were scared about whatever it is, like having a speculum put inside of you is not a nice experience for anyone. Like maybe one in a million people are going to enjoy it. Um, And again, if that's you, you enjoy it. Fair play. Like glad that someone out there is enjoying it. So yeah, I think that There are so many reasons that we can have blocks in these areas, like not only in our genitals, but also in our pelvic pelvis, but also in our hips. You know that they say that hips are where some of the biggest amounts of trauma can be held. And then also, if you look at these incredible studies and, and images that show how your vocal cords and your voice box look exactly the same as your pelvis. And like, it's actually like mind blowing, like the connection between suppressing, clenching your jaw has been connected to clenching your pelvis, like grinding your teeth, migraines, everything is so interconnected that if this is a journey that you are just starting on, 
I can't wait for us to guide you on this, but also just for you to go on it. Because the second that you realize that like having pelvic pain, having painful sex, having pain inserting tampons, having anxiety around anything like that is not normal, but it stems back to something. You can start to understand that healing is possible. So I know we've already spoken about like shame and regret and guilt and that we determined they needed their own category because like they are such a key driver of why you can feel so emotional after sex. But what about the other kinds of emotions that it can bring up and how it can be triggering on an emotional level, not just a physical level? I think emotions are a beautiful topic in connection to sex organs, if you want to be very clinical like that, because usually your lower level emotions. So if you're looking at anxiety, anger, frustration, resentment, shame, guilt, being the lower two, the way they harmonize in the body is that it places us in a position where everything becomes about survival. Now, if you're looking at shame as an example, shame is really absolute disgust with ourselves. So if you have this feeling that's inside of you, we see it as shame, but if we were going to rename it as disgust with myself, it changes the whole context completely. Now, if you're feeling ashamed with yourself, disgusted with yourself because you've done something, what's the next focal point that's in the progression? That's going to be looking at your genitals and going, I'm disgusted with you that you made me do something like this because of the desire that you had that needed to be fulfilled. And I don't like you. So now all of a sudden there's the separation from the lower half of my body, the things that actually do liberate us and actually give us that pleasure and, and absolute freedom. Now I don't want anything to do with that. And now you've created a mini trauma with yourself. Whereas the minute we start steering further up, let's call it your scales of, of emotions to a point where you start stepping into more of a loving space that becomes conscious, that becomes logical, that becomes more, I can rationalize with my body and dance with my body very differently. I can put music on, I can feel myself, I can feel the stiffness. What is these, what are these things that are going on in my body? How can I interpret them differently? So your mindset automatically starts changing, especially if your emotional state starts changing. So the goal is always trying to steer yourself towards more of a courageous place that's far easily, far more easily accessible than one of the lower level emotions. And when you get to that space, that's when you can play around and actually see what's going on in my body, what's going on in my mind, how can I align it and start being curious with, with what's coming up. Yeah, not only that, but also compassionate. I loved what you said about how like you can feel like a resentment after you've finished, you know, having sex or or having an orgasm because I think everyone jokes about that. Like if you watch porn, which actually I don't watch porn anymore, but I used to. And it's that joke when it's like you, you come, you climax and then you look at the screen afterwards and you're like, oh my fucking God, like what was I watching? I feel like now if I, when I used to like have an orgasm, if I was like on my own, I'd probably just be like, okay, done and dusted, like get back to work. And now since working with people like you, I've really like been taught that I just need to take a few moments and like appreciate my body, a gratitude for the experience, a gratitude for the energy, a gratitude for all of it. And just like, yeah, just treat this, the whole experience with a little bit more compassion rather than treating it with any kind of disgust, like, you know, with the slamming the laptop closed after watching the porn and then being like, what was I watching? Masters and Johnson, they came up with a standard model of human sexual response or the response cycle. And within this, there were four phases. So you have excitement, plateau, orgasm, which the first three are pretty well understood, I think, by a lot of researchers. And the fourth one, 
being resolution or the coming to the end of the experience is where I think that a lot of people do not spend enough time in. And this is where I think if aftercare was something that we really started pressing in sexual relationships, the whole idea of crying within the sexual act or after the sexual act would be minimized a lot. And there's so many different reasons why a person can cry before, during, after sex, like you experienced during the experience and, and after. But it also sounds like your partner is, is beautifully equipped in being able to contain that and hold that space and give you that aftercare that you're needing. And this is something that I think many people can learn from. So yeah, we are coming up for time now. And I feel like we've covered some really incredibly important ground today. Every time we do an episode, I swear we go deeper, we go into more things that are not being discussed, that are more shameful, that are more beautiful than ever before. And I'm so grateful for your knowledge and your experience and how you guide us through these sessions. I, I don't doubt you are going to be helping so many people that are listening. And yeah, so just a big thank you from me to you. And I guess, unless you have anything else to add, I will see you next episode. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we're the hosts of Seeing Red. We deliver intriguing, terrifying and dumbfounding true crime stories each and every week. With a focus on cases from the UK, we do occasionally venture overseas. We've covered everything from the mysterious death of professional footballer Emiliano Sala to the attempted murder of Victoria Sillias, a woman who fell from the sky and lived to tell the tale. Binge our bulging back catalogue and join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red.